This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Welcome back, everybody. We're here today with the one and only Laura McCowan. Laura McCowan is a pioneer in the ever-growing sober movement and inspires people to say yes to a bigger life. She's the best-selling author of We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life, founder and CEO of The Luckiest Club, a global sobriety support organization, and host of Tell Me Something True podcast. We're very excited to have Laura on. Let's go to Laura. Hello, Laura. Welcome to Champagne Problems. Hey, guys. We are very excited to have you on. Uh, it's you know it's funny. We've been following you. I mean, Patrick and I are both in recovery, and we've we've known who you are for for quite some time now, well before the inception of this podcast. So when we were coming together and kind of you know creating our plan going forward, you were absolutely on our short list. Aww. Yeah, yeah. But we you know we felt we needed to grow grow some legs before we got you on, and uh, and here we are. Aren't you so excited? I am, actually. Well, yes. good, good. Um, all right, well, let's dive in. So let's start by giving our listeners a little bit of a maybe an early life bio by you. Okay. I grew up in Colorado, uh, lived there through uh, right up through college. So I went to college there, grew up in a pretty normal suburban small town Uh life in in Colorado in this little town called Castle Rock and I grew up in a family where drinking was absolute over drinking was absolutely normal uh, my parents were divorced when I was about six they both uh, drank in their respective homes and with their partners and friends and family just as just as like a matter of course it, mm -hmm. I never even really thought about it in so far as like to think it was strange until you know i got older and other people would come over or you know like my when my ex-husband and i met and he started spending a lot of time with my family and was like god your family likes to drink a lot <laughs> and it was like really i didn't know you know yeah. so i mean you know but you don't know so i went to college for business marketing at colorado state you know, big party school. Mm -hmm. I went and moved to Boston right after that. And uh, when I was 21 and started working for a startup, another, you know, heavy drinking environment and just kind of carried on like that. You know, I was, I was always seeking like the good time and the fun people, which meant drinking people. And, uh, but, but that said my drinking, you know, wasn't always, champagne problems mm -hmm. it was <laughs> it was some problems and a lot of fun and then the, the problems started to overtake the fun and um yeah how far do you want me to go into my before we get into current I times that, i know that story yeah yeah it sounds <laughs> familiar yeah it's a yeah it's the most boring story ever right it's like All right First, it was fun. Cross the threshold. Then it was the problems, yeah. right? So, what was kind of the breaking point? Like, where, when did you realize that there was an issue, or when did, when did somebody else realize that there was an issue, and right. and how did that kind of take place? And what was the segue into that life, into you know, into your life now? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because 
I have a different perspective even now than I would have five years ago or when I first got sober on when the problem started. Uh, I am about eight years sober now and I can say, well, I actually realized it in writing my book that I kind of knew I had this knowing that I drank differently than other people from almost the very beginning. I just knew I liked it more and I knew that I would because you start to watch other people and I thought I I started to notice like they didn't feel really bad when they were hungover like not physically but not only physically but emotionally like they weren't carrying around this like dark sense of shame Mm -hmm. and constantly like they just they weren't trying to protect their drinking and make excuses and I was from the very beginning as I was a blackout drinker. How old were you when you first started drinking? I have started, I think I had my first drink when I was 15, but I didn't, I played sports in high school and I was afraid enough of getting kicked off the team because you, the volleyball team, because you would, that I didn't really get into it until the end of high school. Okay. Yeah. I remember very distinctly this moment. Uh, it was my high school graduation party at my family's restaurant and I remember I was very anxious at the time. I had an eating disorder. There was all kinds of stuff going on in my family. And I had no skills, no tools to process anything, really. And I I just carried around this really acute anxiety all the time. And I uh, went to the party. And I could drink freely at that point with my family and anyone else. So the, the bar was kind of open. And I remember so well, I remember what I had on. I remember who exactly was standing there around the bar with me as I poured my like third giant Bacardi Limon and Diet Coke. And I know. (laughs) I remember those. uh, Right? And um, feeling that, feeling it go down my throat. And I was, I felt like beautifully numb. All that anxiety was gone. Everything, it felt like I could do anything and everything was going to be totally fine. Like what was I so worried about just an hour before? What was all that anxiety about? And I remember thinking so clearly to myself, if I just stay this way, everything will be okay. I remember that too. And I remember that like, that flip of like that little moment of fear like no you know you can't do that you know you can't stay like this you can't be drunk all the time (laughs) but also i really thought like oh this is my superpower like i really can do anything i can be able to flirt with the guys the way i want to i can feel good in my body i can not feel all the anxiety i cannot feel all the pain and I really chased that. Like, I, I remember that moment so viscerally, and I really chased that. So, I mean, I was 17 when that happened, right? And so, but I did blend in, and I did, I, I you know, I, it's like this game that we get really good at playing of calculating when we're so-called keeping it together mm-hmm. and able to keep it together. And um, as long as we're able to keep it together more often than not, it's like we don't worry that much because everyone else is also out of control and whatever. It, the the two times that really changed for me was when I had my daughter. Well, first, no, before I had my daughter, when I got married because I had this 
I should not have gotten married when I did. I was not because I was too young. I wasn't. I was like 27, but I was just not emotionally fit to be in a lifetime commitment with someone. And I very quickly realized, oh, my God, I made a mistake. Mm. And I didn't know what to do with that. So I started drinking at it more and more. And then I started acting out and acting outside of our marriage and then drinking at that. And so it got really bad very quickly after that. And then when I became a mom a few years later, that's when it really got bad. And it um, changed. Same same husband? Same husband. I mean, yeah. mo- child with him. Yeah. Yep. Child gotcha. with him. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I created a lot of pain and drama and trauma for everybody in that because I just didn't know what else to do other than drink and what had become my superpower started to break everything you know from the inside out so when I became a mom though it it really stopped working like alcohol stopped working like it had before I just remember this feeling of not sleeping at all I was had really bad postpartum depression and anxiety. I lost all kinds of weight, and I would just like try to hold on until the afternoon when I could start drinking wine, mm-hmm. and then I would start to drink it, and I would f- get no relief. It would just actually make my anxiety worse. Oof. And I remember thinking, like, "Fuck, <laughs> what, do I what do happened? Now? <laughs> what happened to what happened to that?" Betrayed you me. know, even if even if it wasn't an an hour or two hours of relief, I just did, it wasn't there anymore. And so I just tried to drink more and then the consequences get worse. And uh, it's a, it's a vicious cycle. The end, end came, um, or at least the end of my sort of denial when I got a, I left my daughter in a hotel room alone by herself at my brother's wedding when she, my daughter was four years old overnight. I blacked out, went and slept in someone else's hotel room and woke up to multiple texts from family members asking me where my daughter was or where I was because my daughter had made it to them. And that was as horrific as it sounds. Um, It was a moment where I thought, you know, I, I for some reason thought even if I had had a DUI at that point. I mean, I had had major, major consequences and many small ones, years of them. But I, for some reason, thought like I could still, like nothing would ever happen to her. I wouldn't do that because I love her too much. Like I still was under the illusion that I had enough control that I would, I would never put her in harm. And when that happened, it broke whatever, all that denial. And I started to go to meetings and I started to try to get sober. I didn't actually get sober for another year, Mm -hmm. but that's what started the stopping. Because after that, I couldn't not know what kind of situation I was in. Wow. Hey, Laura, thanks for sharing that. That's that's powerful. And I know you've shared it before and you've even written about it. But man, just hearing it from the source, that's that's some serious stuff. Thank you for, for being open to share that. Yeah. So I've read your book and it's fantastic. What was it like writing that? It was kind of a dream. Um, 
a, but a weird dream because I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I never in a million years thought that that would be what I'd be writing about. <laughs> right. So it's like, oh, I have a lot to say, but I can't believe it's about this. Uh-huh. Um, but it was, it was one of the most healing things I've ever done. It was one of the most, you know, it was like therapy on steroids to write that because even though I had talked about it a lot at that point and shared about it, spoke about it for years before the book came out, writing it still changed me. I mean, it helped me understand myself and other people that were, you know, that I had, that I wrote about and my relationships and my past and my history and everything that it contributed to getting me to where I was. It helped me understand it better. And, and I mean, that's, it saved me writing about my, my, about this experience saved me. I, that's why I'll always say, you know, open your mouth somehow, open it on the page or open it with other people. Um, is it, we, that's how we get our story straight, right? I wasn't just this piece of shit person who hurt everybody and was out of control and, you know, this debased, immoral mom. Mm-hmm. You were human. I was someone in a lot of pain. Yeah. And I was someone who was doing what she knew how to do until what she knew how to do didn't work anymore. Yeah. Was there somebody that pushed you to write the book or was this like you just woke up one morning and started writing or was is there like a story behind how it actually materialized yeah no one pushed me writing is is funny because a lot of people say oh i want to write a book someday but they but writing is actually this extraordinarily grueling awful process it's why we do a podcast i tried to write a book i was like i can't do it i can't do it yeah, I mean, it's if you have to really want to do it to do it, like really want to do it because it's it's just a lot of work, you know, and, yeah. and not to say other things aren't a lot of work, but it's a specific kind of work. And unless you really, really want to do it and really like to write, it's it's not something that most people choose. So no one forced me to. I had always written. I'd always dreamed of being a writer. I've always been obsessed with words. I've always made sense of the world through literature and poetry and words and I had I had started and stopped writing blogs uh, many times over the years, and uh, and I'm not a particularly, at least as far as I know, creative person. I've never tried to write like fiction, so I would always want to write about my life. But I ha- it's really hard to write about your life if you're not honest about your life, right? So, especially when I was starting to be in a lot of pain, like in my marriage and in early motherhood, I really tried to write, but I had to be all elusive and like it, I couldn't say anything because I had so many secrets. And so once I decided, what actually happened is I read a blog post of Glennon Doyle Mountain, well, that was her old name, Glennon Doyle's years ago, back when she was on, like her blog was called Momastery. And and it wasn't even her post that I that I read that I that changed me. It was her bio, and it said something like, "You know, I have three kids. I'm a recovering alcoholic and bulimic. I'm, you know, I'm depressed and anxious." And did it. she just like said all these things? Just went, <laughs> just said it. And I thought, that's what I want. I want to be able to do that. And I <laughs> had this realization in that moment, like, oh. Well, then you have to have to actually get sober if you want to say that you're recovering anything. Right. So but I started writing even before I was sober. I I kind of wrote my way into it. And so I just had this 
long, I, I had a really long held desire to write and a reverence for writing. And then once I, I heard Jason Isbell once say, who's sober, once say that when he got sober, he had a story to tell. Yeah. And that's how I felt about getting, about writing my book. It's like, no, now I, now I have a story to tell. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. What did your, your early sobriety look like? Like what did mm-hmm. what did it consist of? What did you do to kind of pull yourself together? Did you go to treatment? Did you go to AA? Like was hey, it? What's you know? your tool belt look like? Yeah, what's my tool belt? Yeah, <laughs> I did not go to treatment. I should have. Um, I I it just didn't even seem. I wouldn't say I should have because I made it. I'm fine. I did yeah. it, and a lot of people, most people, of people, don't go yeah. to treatment. Mm-hmm. It's not that I should have. I think I would have perhaps benefited from it. I didn't realize how sick I was. Um, I, the first time after my brother's wedding, I stopped drinking like cold turkey and and went through horrific withdrawals, hallucinations. You know, Mm. I'm, I'm very lucky that that didn't turn out terribly, but, um, I didn't realize how sick I was. So I thought that I would just stop and kind of get quiet. So in the background, get sober in the background, not really change anything about my life tell a few people but not many people and just like make it nbd no big deal you know i'm just getting sober that obviously didn't work so i started to go to aa meetings that was my first entree because i didn't know what else to do yeah i didn't know i didn't know i knew two sober people in the world they were both from aa and AA really saved me like it was my first entree into any sort of sober community i met the first sober people that, you know, my had my first sober, like, friends, boyfriends, um, group of women, and I hated it. Like, I <laughs> I didn't, I, I both loved and hated it. I loved aspects sure. of it, but I hated more about it. And I actually wrote a really long chapter in my book about this because I've had, you know, I had a whole sort of growth experience with AA where I pushed really hard against it, and then those people showed up for me time and time and time and time again. And while, so while I can have criticisms about certain aspects of the fellowship, I do think that the 12 steps are extraordinary and beautiful. And um, I was lucky enough to live in a city where there's some diversity in the meetings. And I don't think that I get sober without AA. I don't think there's that, that story exists. I don't know because that's how it went, but that was such an integral part of my first couple of years um, I got my first service position which like allowed me to put myself in in the middle of a group and learn what it's like to be humble and shut up and just like show up really just show up consistently and um, let people carry me you know to show up for to, to see what it's like to to be able to offer something even if I only had one or two days of sobriety I still had something to say yeah and so yeah. I started to, you know, tell the truth. That was that is the biggest yeah. part of what I learned in AA was people were not going to accept they it's like they could see right through me. And I I learned how to tell the truth from other women in AA. I learned from watching them, talking to them. I learned how to do that. And um so I so AA was a big part. I still consider it a big part, but like it's just the, the 12 steps are sort of in me. I did the steps in my fourth year. I don't go to meetings anymore. I haven't gone to meetings for years, but I still carry so much of what 
I learned there with me. And at, at the same time that I did AA, I, I um, did all kinds of other things. I've always been like a big reader. I've always been a seeker. So I had, I, I was a yoga teacher long before I got sober. I relied on a lot of the things I learned there. I did a lot of therapy. I um, wrote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like creativity is a huge part of my recovery. I started a podcast myself. I uh, created, you know, I, I did it like my own. I joined, but I did it my own way. Yeah. And I think, I, it's import- I think it's important I for people to hear that because it's like there's this idea that, you know, you're going to lose you're going to be less yourself when you join a group and it could be AA or anything else. And that's, I've discovered that's not true at all. It just, you just suffer less, yeah. you're not less yourself. I love that point that you made. What you said struck me today around the idea of being in a group that can see through your bullshit and that actually essentially forces you to, to get honest. I've never really thought about how valuable that dynamic is in terms of sobriety support groups that's pretty freaking cool i think that is it like i think of all the other things that are offered as part of being in a group i think the truth telling factor because i i I know we don't nobody gets better without telling the truth like I, i actually posted this um little clip the other day of carolyn mace who's a spiritual teacher saying liars don't heal and the way she's hilarious and her delivery is like deadpan and she's she's like got her whole style but it's but it's absolutely true yeah we we can't heal and i had no idea the extent to which i was dishonest like i i knew when i was outright lying about like how much i was drinking or where i was or things like that but just the the like nervous twitch habit of lying that i had developed from a child from childhood and and that is what the gift of being in a group was yeah. for me. Yeah. It's like the utility of the group is actually a catalyst to the honesty part. It's yeah. like, cause when I got, so I couldn't, you know, they talk about honesty being the, you know, principle behind the first step. I wasn't even capable of doing that. And to understand no. that the group can be the thing that empowers you to do that or enable you to do that. It's something I haven't really. Well, because I think what happens is you see that people tell the truth and they don't like okay. explode. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> they don't like vaporize like you imagine you will. And and then they also, you start to see that truth is what moves you closer to love. Like mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. all this lying and dodging and shape-shifting and all these other, these things that we've learned to do. It's, it's the telling of the truth. I love the phrase, you're only as sick as your secrets. Uh, you know, that, that just holds so much truth. Even if you've got one secret, it it's in there. <laughs> and it's, oh, and, and it's, it will ruin and you. And it's boiling. Yeah. When you were talking about uh, your, you know, f- first few days and, and, and time in AA and service commitments. So I go to meetings now. <laughs> A buddy of mine recently came into the program and shared with us that he was at a meeting and, you know, a thing came around to sign up for some service commitments and it said chairperson. And he thought it meant breaking down and putting up chairs. So he signed up for it and got an email a night later. And it was like nine things that he he was responsible for for that whole month. That's so awesome. He started panicking. It's like, oh, I'll do the least. (laughs) Yeah. I'll do the least. Break down the chairs. The least work. Uh, No, actually, you're going to lead the whole fucking thing. Yeah, the whole deal. (laughs) 
<laughs> How long after you got sober did you start writing your book? Pretty quick. I, it, it, so writing a book is weird because I wrote many, like, yeah. I started it many different times and had different ideas about what it could be or should be. I, I started writing it. There are parts of that of the book that I wrote before I got sober or when I was very, very new. And then a lot of it I wrote later. Um, so sometime, the answer is sometime between zero and like four years. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your organization and just yeah. give our listeners the rundown. Yeah, it's I. So when in March of 2020, when lockdowns came, uh, I remember sitting and it was a Saturday. I remember sitting on my couch and I got an email from my local AA chapter that said, we're closing, you know, effective now indefinitely. And I thought, oh my God, I have never seen them close, not yeah. in a blizzard, not in any, for any reason. And so I thought, well, people are going to be, this is really bad. Yeah. People are going to, um, they, they don't have anywhere to go. So I thought oh, I could host online meetings. Like I can do that. I have an email list. I have, I know how to do it. So I started um, sending out an email saying and posting on social that I'll, I'll you know, I'm going to host two meetings tomorrow. Uh, and then I just kept doing that. Like I did a weekly schedule and um, I hosted two meetings a day for like six weeks and I had speakers, and I, I built this like format that I that I liked. Some of it was for for my learnings, you know, about what AA helped a lot because it's like, oh, how do you run a meeting? But it, they, but they aren't AA meetings. They had this kind of format, and I mean, I was building it like as I was doing it. I wasn't too worried about whether or not it was going to be great. It was just like let's give people a place to go, and so I started doing that, and hundreds of people started to show up and a lot of people who had never experienced a meeting before because they've never never wanted to go to AA wouldn't go to AA they maybe weren't sober yet you know everyone's locked in their homes a lot of people are drinking more all that stuff played into it and so I was going to stop because it was a lot to do a couple of meetings a day every day every, you know for weeks but uh People were like, you know, we would we'll pay like a nominal fee if you can just keep this going. And wow. so I figured I figured out like how could I keep this going because it can't be me. So I um, hired ten other people that I know in the recovery space um, to host the meetings, and we started. Uh, we launched the Luckiest Club, and uh, it started as just like I think we had ten or eleven meetings a week, so a couple a day. Um, I came up with a, a script and, you know, we had rules and, and, you know, all the things you do when you kind of start a community, you're just like figuring it out. But it, we started and had 10 meetings a week. You know, I've, I only led like a couple of them and now we have 34 meetings a week and we have meetings, you know, queer focused meetings and BIPOC focused meetings and newcomer meetings and wow. beyond one year meetings and we're adding a bunch more and we have also like a part of um, the luckiest club that's called the academy where people can do courses and um, take workshops and we're doing live events starting next month and all those types of things so yeah it's just grew into something I never planned on doing but it's beautiful it's an amazing community and it's you know the whole thing is like we're dogma free we accept all paths to recovery 
you can show up we are focused on alcohol addiction and we aren't we're not about harm reduction we're about sobriety so there are some there's guardrails sure but it's but it's like this you know we're we all share in this common purpose of getting sober and thriving in life and if you want to show up you can show up i love it god i love it i I saw uh chris marshall was a part of it he's he's gonna come on as well yeah what a guy what a guy. Yeah, we did um we did something on a smaller scale similar with Heron Project when the first I'm part of their clinical team, Chris's um nonprofit and they did yep. we did re- same thing like right when COVID hit. We were like we got to do something and and we had we did one meeting a night, you know, every night wow. via Zoom and yeah, it was like, you know, after 6 months, it was like we you know, I didn't know any of these people before this started. I've never met them and it's like we're family now. So, I mean, I, I, I can imagine how meaningful having the luckiest club has been for people that have been newly sober or, you know, really needed that support during the pandemic or people that got shut out from their meetings. Um, right. Thank you for, for taking the initiative and doing that. Cause I'm sure it's had a massive impact on a lot of people. Yeah. No, thank you for saying that. I, it's been a gift to me too. No doubt. You know, we've known about, like, Holly Whitaker and some of the other Sober Curious pioneers. We had Ruby Warrington on. Nice. You guys just have had, as a collective, had such a wonderful reputation for what you've brought to women in sobriety or seeking sobriety and having honest conversations around it. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is about, the like, the female culture that drives alcohol use in, in our society? Well, it's been about 10 to 15 years where we started to see a shift in mm-hmm alcohol being directly marketed to women so some of it a big part of it is that it's big alcohol is like oh new market mm-hmm. <laughs> we're gonna what ann dowsett johnson called the pinking of the alcohol industry we're gonna pink everything up rosé all day um and make, make it, women make it cute. Make, make it cute, cute <laughs> make women feel like they're doing something slightly subversive, yeah. that it's empowering. This, act, this act of feminism, which is fucking hilarious, yeah. um, considering what happens when you drink. And, you know, like they've, it's a big market for women. So that plays into it. I think women entering the workforce and taking on more. You know, that I, I've done a lot of research uh, in shame and Brene Brown's work has been huge in that. And, and she, in her research, uncovered that the primary thing that women strive to be and thus hold shame around when they can't or don't is everything to everyone, here to serve, be cute and look good while I'm doing it, right? And, and hold it all together. Hold it all together. Mm-hmm. We can't. <laughs> no one can. No one can, right. And something has to hold that up on the back end. Yeah. So here, here's this elixir to cover up all the shame. <laughs> here's this elixir to cover up, cover up the exhaustion and the yeah. shame and the pain and the fear and the fact that you're completely disconnected from yourself and give you a false sense of community with and, people with uh, everybody with other women that are doing this going through the same shit it's like 
that's the false 100%. bullshit. 100%. That's yeah. the, and that's the mommy drinks wine, the mommy cult, you know, mommy wine culture, women bonding over this thing. Alcohol and wine specifically becomes this thing that symbolizes our m- moment of me time and independence and self care and sort of fuck you to everything else. I mean, that's strong. You know, that's, that's re- really strong. And then, of course, in the background, it's a highly addictive substance and it only it makes everything that we're trying to medicate worse literally physiologically mm-hmm. depression anxiety lack of sleep yep so it's this perfect storm and we and then there's just this the added into that marketing around alcohol is just this american it's not just america but it is largely america that we don't see alcohol as a drug it's alcohol and drugs we don't mm-hmm. see we see it as this sort of beautiful substance this like elixir of the gods that we encourage over drinking truly but with the message also that you need to do it in moderation right <laughs> and if you're not able to do that if you're not able to dance this impossible dance then then you're an alcoholic. You, yeah. You're and out of control. Yeah. And then there's this huge stigma. <laughs> and right. then you're and then you're pulled away from your connections, your perceived connections with uh, with all the other moms and women and work is a huge part of this too. You know, I worked in advertising like we all drank. It was it was part of and that's that's not a just a female thing. That's like that's it, that's true for everybody. In, in the workplace. So it's, there's so many factors. It's a giant gaslighting project. Yeah, that's a great way to put that it. That's a good way to put it. With all that being said, what is Laura McCowan's counter to that narrative? Yeah, it's changed over time. So at the beginning, when I first got sober, I had this feeling when I would look around, and at, this was, say, after the, the instance at my brother's wedding where I instantly, like that, because now my family knew what they might have suspected, but, like, you know how people are around. Like, they all drink too, and mm-hmm. they don't want me shining a mirror on them, and they're kind of <laughs> right. complicit. We're all kind of complicit. So I just kind of shut up about it and hoped I was going through a bad phase with my divorce and everything. But after the wedding... It was like, oh, you have a problem. And I did, but you have a problem and you need to go deal with it. And we're going to continue on as we were. And the same went for my friends and people at work. I'm not saying that they all had problems, but everybody drank a lot. Yeah. I just had crossed this like invisible line at some point. And to be fair, everyone was on the spectrum somewhere. Sure. But I had crossed into this territory. Okay. So I remember going into work one day on the subway and just being filled with this hot rage because it was like there is something so much bigger going on than me having a problem Hmm. this is i do and it's i've got to sort it out but we are all under this mass delusion that alcohol is benign that we're all lying. We're all suffering. We're all in pain. Forget the alcohol. 
we're all in so much pain and everyone's lying to each other. Why can't we talk about our pain? And so that more than anything, it's not a, it's not a narrative about alcohol. Like that's in there. It's a big part of it. It's a symptom. Yes. But why can we not talk about our pain? And to me, that's the counter narrative. It's like, you are not an alcoholic or an addict or all these things that you feel and have done. You are a human in a lot of pain. Doing the things that people do when they're in pain is to find relief. And you found relief in this way because it's fucking easy and it's accessible and everyone does it. And it's effective. And it's really effective. So it's not shame on you. It's shame on everything. It's shame on all of us. And like, also, can we all just admit we're like in pain? And can we all just start talking about that? That's the counter narrative, and especially to women. Like, it's the shame, like speaking directly to their shame. Because for me, there is nothing worse than being a mother who drank like I did. And for every other mom I, I meet, it's the same deal. Like, I can't believe I did this as a mom. What kind of mother does that? And the, the counter narrative that I have to that is like, you just, we, you're doing what everyone else does. You're doing what works, right? And there's so much underneath why you're doing what you're doing. And you're fine. You're, you're just a human like everybody else. This isn't even interesting. <laughs> this isn't even interesting. This is like, this is what people do when they're in pain. Yeah. Period. Yeah. So let's stop talking about it like it's special, like there's them and there's us, and um, start talking, telling each other the truth. Mm. Laura, man, that was it right there. That was awesome. Thanks. Yeah, it's true. Felt jerked a tear out of me. (laughs) Oh, no. I mean, oh, yes. It's just so good. And we both work in the mental health space. And it's, I mean, that is just such a common thing that we, you know, we all get together and why, 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 why? And it's just, it's right in front of you, it seems. And it just seems almost commonsensical. And, and it, it, there's nothing different out there. You know, it just keeps going in the same direction. And it's right. baffling. And, and we keep trying to like plug this hole, right? Yeah. We plug this hole, plug this hole, plug this hole. And, to me, alcohol is just the biggest elephant in the room because we we are even, like my friends, my family, like if you bring up alcohol and, and try to talk to somebody about it seriously and, and shine any kind of a mirror back, it's, we're all so defensive about it. Like we really love our alcohol mm-hmm. and I get it, I did too. Um, but it, but continuing this lie hurts everybody. Yeah. Also the, the other narrative is like everything you want, all these things you want are actually on the other side of, of trying to, to cure the pain, right? It's not just the alcohol. It's all the other things, all the things that we really want, like this direct experience of life is what I think we want. You got to look straight at it. And you know, that's not something a lot of people can or are willing to do because it's hard. Yeah. Because it isn't about, I mean, we're discussing alcohol, but it's not about that. It's about 
survival mechanisms and, and defenses that keep us in our comfortable place. And that's, you know, as intellectual beings, that's what we have figured out how to do. And that's it right. just is so consistently counterproductive, even though it's potential. naturally what we do. It's, right. it's just bizarre. But it's normal. And it's what, you know, people just need to understand that, I don't know, there's, a, there's an education behind this. Like, pe there's information around this that people just lack. And we have to go through the dredges to finally uncover some of this awareness. And, and it's like, oh, God, I've been doing it wrong all this time. Yeah, but not because you're stupid or no. because you, you, yeah, it's just because it's you're actually quite intelligent. You've mm -hmm. done what works, right? And right. who wouldn't do any differently? Who wouldn't? Yeah. Do you think the sober curious and the alcohol free and the wellness trends are, are here to stay? Do you think we're going in the right direction and they are increasing? I do think so. Yes. And we'll, time will tell, you know, I think we'll really know in like 10 years but if I look at just the past eight years, it's incredible yeah. Yeah. how much has changed. It's easy to get, feel really defeated about the fact that, you know, the pan, especially in the pandemic, so many more people drank more, far more, and more hospitalizations and more overdoses and, and all of those things, all of those things. Um, but at the same time, there's more, there's more programs, more modalities. I cannot believe the number of people that openly talk about sobriety now. Yeah. That was not the case when I got sober. It was still very anonymous, hush-hush, um, shameful. Like, and that still exists, but wow. Yeah. There's a lot of people talking about it. And what research shows is that the younger generation is actually drinking a lot less. Like alcohol is a lot less of a priority for them. They're less interested in it. And I think that's sort of the trickle down. I hope that's the trickle down effect. Like my daughter knows more about alcohol drinking, not drinking than I ever even, I, I mean, I had no clue. Like I said at the beginning of our conversation, I thought every, I thought, that was the rite of passage when you become an adult is you get to drink alcohol yeah. and everyone does it. And it's just like having, you know, shampoo in your shower, you're going to have alcohol in your house. Mm -hmm. uh, she knows that that's not the case. She knows she doesn't have to drink. She knows that drinking is serious and that it's no different than smoking cigarettes. Um, as far as, you know, she, she has it in her mind that, Cigarettes are bad. She sees someone smoking and she goes, oh, that's, I, I'm worried for them. They're, they might be addicted to it. They're going to, it's going to hurt their health. And we've had so many conversations about how alcohol, like that's alcohol too, honey, you know? And so I think there's this, the, the generation that I'm in, I, I think hopefully with more people talking openly about it, you know, we're, we're the mothers right now and the grandmothers and hopefully that's translating down to our kids and more importantly like the mental health conversation has gotten bigger also yeah and those two things can't be separated and so people who are more my my daughter talks about therapy she talks about how um she is able she's so much more self-aware she's so much more able to talk about emotions and i think that's that is a product of all of these things. Yeah, That's yeah. a product of just the normalization of these conversations. 
Um, because the, the reality, again, going back to like, we need people who are better able to cope with pain yeah, and, and have better tools. And we need to, I mean, it's, it goes all the way down to like generational trauma. You know, we need mm -hmm. people who are able to stop a cycle of trauma and abuse. I don't actually think we get to a place in time where people start to change <laughs> outside of being in pain. Like that's just the, the way that humans have been from the beginning of time, right? Mm -hmm. Buddhists mm -hmm. recognize this. They're like, yep. let's just all admit they're suffering and that there is a way through the suffering. Like they never said, you can get rid of the suffering entirely and right. live in a state of eternal bliss. Like that, we actually wouldn't learn anything. We wouldn't be interesting. No. So we'd get I don't bored. think it's about, <sighs> we'd get real bored. So I don't think it's about, I don't think that that's even the goal. I think it's just to be able to be more honest about our pain and more honest about the ways that we struggle and to not have alcohol be the answer to everything. Yeah. And to not have this idea that if you get addicted to alcohol, that it's a personal problem or a personal failing. It's like, it should be like c cigarettes or any other drug where you go, well, yeah, it's, you're going to get addicted because it's addictive, right? Yeah. So it's a long-winded way of saying, I do really believe that there's pro that progress is being made. And, you know, people shit on the, the sober curious and wellness movements around alcohol. I think it's awesome. The, the lower the bar can be on having a conversation about alcohol, the better. I don't care yeah. if it's for a 30 day challenge. Mm -hmm. I don't care if it's for sober October or dry January. I don't care. It's great. Having, being able to open your mouth and say, I think I'm going to stop, stop drinking this, this month. Like that's stuff that people wouldn't, my, none of my yeah. friends would have said that. Shit. I'm not going to drink 20. tonight. You know, I'm going <laughs> yeah. to take yeah. a night that's off. Big enough, you know? Right. None of my friends would have said that. Cause then it's like, why you have a yeah. problem you're admitting that this is something you're worried about you know but now people right. are willing to do that even if they're saying they're doing it for other reasons fine fine yeah laura mccowan why do you care hmm. no one's ever asked me that before that's how we do it yeah, robbie's weird that's how you do it that's how you do it um why do i care i have always even as a kid, been deeply interested in how we make it through things, about what's underneath the, the top shiny layer. And I am so incredibly interested in the spectacular triumphs of the human spirit. That's why it's like we get to see that here. Every I get I see that happen every day. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Give us the three most valuable things that you've experienced after eliminating alcohol from your life. Mm, that's fun. Okay, presence. I can actually be present for everything. I don't miss anything. I'm not missing my life. So that's one. Uh, two. There's this quote that I love that played a big part in me getting sober, and it's the Gospel of Thomas quote where uh, it says, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. And if you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And not drinking yeah. has given me the capability to bring forth what was in me. 
with writing. Uh, so that's number two. And yeah. number three is being a, a safe mom. Number three, being a safe mom. Nothing. I, I, I love that I'm a boring, we love that too dependable, about you. safe mom. Awesome, Laura. Thank you so much for coming on. This was really fun. We so love your perspective and passion and, and mission and, and are honored to have you on the Champagne Problems. So thank you. And thanks for everything you've done and that you're doing. To thank you. You know, help push this work. moving along. Better the world. Yeah, we really, pre- we really appreciate you. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.